Welcome one and all to the Michael Matthews episode of Sigma Sports Presents, Matt Stevens Unplugged. He's Australian. How Australian are you? If, of course, you're an Australian. Let us know in the comments section of, well, basically social media. He's a fast man. In fact, he's one of the best sprinters stroke punchers in the peloton, maturing like a fine wine, almost like an Australian Shiraz. Actually, Niall, is Shiraz an Australian wine? Uh, I don't know. Anyway, um, did you know he's also a mind reader? So check out the Canberra quiz in this very podcast to find out more. Also, what dinosaur would he be too? Wonderful stuff. Plus, he tells me the fascinating story of how he came to be a pro bike rider and how an unlikely inspirational figure called Des put him on that path. So sit back, relax, throw a joint of lamb on the barbie and enjoy the pod. <laughs> a joint of lamb. <laughs> I like that. And welcome. Are you ready? Because it's that time again. Matt Stevens unplugged by Sinus Michael Matthews has won some of the biggest races on the planet. He's been under-23 UCI World Road Champion and Pro World Team Time Trial Champion too. He's won stages at all of the Grand Tours, held the leader's jersey and sprinter's jersey at the Giro and the Vuelta, but perhaps his crowning glory was winning the green jersey outright at the 2017 Tour de France, as well as having two stage wins in his back pocket as well. But what effect will his exile to Europe have on his knowledge of Canberra, his hometown in Australia? Which dinosaur best represents his personality traits? And what exactly does he think of his DS, Matt Whitey White? I'll be finding out the answers to these questions and so much more in the next hour and 11 minutes. So without further ado, let's get on the road. No. <laughs> let's get on the road. Right. So without further ado, let's get on with the pod. Check it out. Well, Michael, thanks very much, mate, for coming on the Matt Stevens Unplugged podcast. It's uh, really good of you to give up your time, especially during such a busy week. But before we start, mate, what I'd like to do for the listeners is to set things in a little bit of context. Could you tell us um, and describe to us exactly where in the world you are and what you can see immediately around you in the room that you're recording? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thanks for having me, Matt. Um, Yeah, I'm currently in Ghent at the moment um, in Belgium. We're staying at a hotel called uh, The Lapel Bed, where uh, Green Edge has stayed the last couple of years. It's a family-owned hotel, which is really great. And I'm actually in the bar area nice. in the middle of the day. So it's either really dangerous or a really great place to be at the moment. So, um, nah, sun shining, uh, no wind, and uh, had an easy ride uh, with a teammate today. So, nah, it's been a great day so far. Good stuff. Good stuff. So you're not tempted to have a cheeky little beer because it's that time of day because it's two o'clock in Central Europe, isn't it? You've got the bike racing on the telly very soon. So it's, yeah. you've, got, you've got to be disciplined, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, well, I think I'm, I'm quite lucky. Uh, as, a, as a young teenager, I got drunk way too much. And now actually the thought of alcohol makes me feel sick. So I think I actually did myself a favor for my long-term lifespan that I don't drink anymore. So oh, you don't, I'm pretty happy myself. Oh, you don't drink at all? No, I, the, the flavor of it makes me feel sick. The, the smell also makes me feel sick. So on a special occasion, you know, parties, uh, weddings, I'll have one or two, but I never really, yeah, no more than that. I don't, I don't enjoy it. So 
Fair enough. Yeah, mate. I don't really never feel the need to. Yeah. Fair enough, mate. Fair enough. Well, uh, well, thanks for describing where you are. We've kind of obviously we're, we're in between. Um, we've got tour, you've got the Tour of Flanders coming up this weekend. You've got some teammates already out on the road in Duardo's Vlaanderen. But as it's so so kind of immediate, um, let can we just talk a little bit about Gen- where we're going on the weekend? I mean, what a race! I mean, I was lucky enough to be commentating, um, but we dropped into comms with seventy kilometers done. Still a long way to go. And the race was like all over the place, and I didn't know what the hell had happened. <laughs> so, um, and then afterwards, when the dust settled at the end of the race, we found out that it was it was you guys that had kind of split things up. So, can you just talk us talk us through exactly how that came about? Was it something pre planned with the team, or was it one of those conversations and decisions you had on the road? Because it it really did set the tone for an amazing race. Yeah, well, we have a. Like quite a young, fresh DS um, with uh, Matt Heyman straight out, <laughs> straight out of black racing. So, yeah, he's been around. He's uh, he, he lives he lives here now in in Belgium. So you know you know Maddie. He's done every single race here, and he knows every single road like the back of his hand. And um, yeah, we we maybe made a few mistakes uh, in E three as a team. Um, so we thought, you know what, let's just go on the front foot um, in Ghent and. Let's be the team that's that's making the race, and um, we did a bit. Well, Maddie did a lot of research on where we could do that, where would be the best point to uh, to make that move, and um, yeah, I think we we came to the agreement around 70, 71k into the race was a really good point where guys were not really ready for the crosswind sections at that point because yeah. we have the that big stretch uh, of road. But they did in Dapana. It always uh, skips my mind the name of the road for sure. You know it, Matt. Yep. Help me out here. Oh, I can't remember. I, I know the bit. It's right. It's, the, it's essentially the most northern part of that race, isn't it? Uh, right yeah. at the top before you kind of change you direction. That, but I'm not too sure of the name of it. Yeah, you have that real famous road where it's always going to split. So we wanted to be ahead of that. We wanted to be the team that, yeah, was already making the race before that point rather than racing everyone in that point so yeah yeah we had the great idea of going before that and um yeah originally we had five guys in that group of i think 21 riders so um yeah i think there was about two or three k of crosswind before there was a right hand corner we went into like a little village and then we're back out onto the crosswind again so it was crosswind tailwind crosswind headwind back into the crosswind again and it just totally destroyed the bunch i mean when when I came on and we got the race feed through and I looked at the and I just saw I mean obviously I, I can be honest I mean generally any big move like that in uh, in classic racing there's generally a lot of blue jerseys generally there's De Koenig there isn't it? let's be honest <laughs> and they only had Sammy Bennett there didn't they? and then you had five four or five guys there and I was like whoa what's happened here so so basically you stuck to the plan and and they must have been were they just not riding quite near the front or did you just not really pay attention to that you just basically stuck to what you you had planned to do and they just just weren't there yeah well i think at, at that present moment like i think a couple of k before um bahrain started to put a, a couple of guys in the front to sort of put in a bit of crosswind and i think yeah when they started i was like mid bunch yeah. and i was like wow nothing's really going to happen you know like it's not windy enough there's not enough teams really pushing hard here and then basically we went over the top of them and went full gas and i think a lot of teams were like now nah, we're waiting for that point in the race where it's really proper crosswind I, I cannot remember the name of the road but the real key part of the race was at about i think 85 to 90k yeah 
um, I think everyone was waiting for that point to really use their energy to get to that part of the road. Um, so I think, yeah, we just caught a few guys off guard, to be honest. I mean, it must have been, I mean, wonderful to have to, have, to be the dominant team in that breakaway and, and to have executed a plan to perfection. Obviously, you still had to keep riding because there was a lot of furious chasing behind, but ultimately nobody came across the gap, did they? It was just your lead group that gradually whittled down so there was just a few of you left at the end. But um, as, I mean, as you were riding and being looked after, how did you kind of, did you kind of communicate much with the team car? You know, obviously where it was going along behind, you must have felt pretty pleased and pretty stoked at the situation on the road. Yeah, well, the actually, the plan was um, from the start of the day was to go for Luca Mezgit um, okay. for the sprint. Um, I was actually not even going to be riding Ghent. I was sort of, I, I did okay in uh, E3, and but then crashed. So I was like, okay, I need a, I need a, another good hit out before Flanders. So yeah. um, I said, yeah, I'll put my hand up and I'll, I'll race and I'll, I'll help Luca in the final. And um, in the end, <laughs> Luca actually got a flat tire on yeah. the on the plug streets. So, yeah, at that point, I had to change my mindset to actually, yeah, riding for myself. Um, which, yeah, and, you know, in a situation like that, it's um, when you're racing. Unfortunately, we had, I think, the fastest guys in the peloton <laughs> in the breakaway also. So, yeah, yeah, I was like, okay, what do I do now? And, um, yeah, it was, it was one of those races where you remember for a really long time. Like, we didn't expect to be out there for 190K with that uh, that split of the peloton, I guess we can call it, yeah. um, to survive to the finish. But in the end, the guys that we had there had nothing to lose, had had everything to lose if we went back to the peloton also. So yeah. it was like, okay, everyone committed, full gas, and yeah, we stayed away. I mean, it was a pretty iconic-looking breakaway in, in one of the biggest races of the year, isn't it? You know, it's uh, Van Aert, Nizzolo, Trentin, Cobrelli, yourself, Stefan Kung, and obviously Van Baal was trying to get across and stuff. I mean, um, but... But the call, Gent-Wevergham, the sprinters classic, although over the last few years, there hasn't been that really that many bunch sprints, I think five in 10 years. But it really was the sprinters classic, but in like a, in like a, complete, in a completely different way. It, I mean, tell us a little bit about, because when I'm commentating on the, on the race, I'm looking at what's happening and trying to explain to the viewers what it's like, you know, being a sprinter in that sort of situation. You know, it's not quite as simple. I mean, how do you try and conserve as much energy as you can? Um... I think in that situation, you almost couldn't because there was so much wind and we had quite a big bunch. Yeah. So we had 21 riders on a road that's not that wide, you know? So you, unless you're, you, you, you can't, you can't not sit on because otherwise you're in the gutter and you yep. get dropped. Yeah. So technically you have to roll through to save energy. So I think we're all in the same boat where we all had to work to make yeah. sure we stayed in that bunch as fresh as possible. The easiest way was to roll through. Um, so, yeah, I guess, yeah, we all had the same ride and we all had the same opportunities. No, it, it was a cracking race to watch, mate. And um, it, it really, really was. I mean, for, for the neutral and um, for the fans and obviously for, for Whitey in, in, in the car, because <laughs> I, I did message him and I, I tried to, I kind of um, asked him what was going on. And he said that you had Mr. Heyman in, in the DS seat. So that must have been pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But, um, right, what I want to do is just rewind a little bit, um, Michael, if you don't mind. And go all the way back to when you were a kid, as far as you can remember, really. Because, and I do generally ask this of all the guests that come on the podcast, for your first memory of of riding a bike. Oh, 
a, a road bike or a bike in general? Uh, just a bike in general. Just kind of, you know, can just as a kid, just buzzing round, you know, at, at home and stuff uh, in Australia. Can you can you remember or your first bike or your first one of your earliest experiences of getting on a bike, any sort of bike? Yeah, I think I, I watched a video that um, my mum and dad sent me a little while ago, where I was on my little Peewee fifty uh, motorbike riding around the backyard of our house, and I had like a a plank of wood and a brick and I was, I was, uh, I was doing a jump over it just thousands of times over and over again in the backyard. And I think I was maybe, yeah, three or four years old at the time. So okay, I think that, that for me is probably the earliest memory I, I really have of, of riding a bike and like looking back at it and going, yeah, I remember that. Um, but yeah, I think it was just built into me as a kid. I was just obsessed with, with two wheels, I think, um, yeah, well, I was probably riding a bike before I even knew how to walk, to be honest. So, right. Yeah. I just had massive love for it. Was that something that was, um, that your parents impressed on you? Was, were any of your parents, um, bike riders or was it just something that, how did you kind of, I mean, most kids ride bikes, let's be honest with you, but was there another influence coming from the family at all? No. Um, my dad, uh, rode motorbikes like just right. for fun yeah um then i got into some motocross when i got a little bit older uh racing but no he, he i think he also just loved bikes um i think he yeah he rode we went we went motorbike riding almost every weekend so um yeah but nothing to do with racing or road cycling or anything like that right and so i think when when we push these videos when the videos these these podcasts live we do a bit of social media around it and i think i need to ask you if you can um michael mm-hmm. to if you could forward us some of that video that would be blimmin' amazing <laughs> it's so good yeah. if you've got yeah. if you've got it to hand and it's easily accessible uh, at some yeah. point if you could send us that we'd love to see i do love stuff like that uh, just you know looking at you know uh, bike riders back in the early days i mean so what about on not on unmotorized two words and how did you ultimately get to start racing push bikes um i was actually i was actually racing motocross for quite a lot of years um through my teens and um yeah i was actually starting to become a bit of a bad kid um, but i was but i was super good at sports at school um like any sport i did whether it was cross country running um yeah short distance running um, basketball, football, everything I sort of did, I was quite good at, um, yeah. quite easily without really trying. And, um, I think my sports teacher at school, he, um, Des Proctor, his name is, he, um, I like that you can remember the name. That, that's cool. That's cool that you can remember the name. Yeah. He noticed at high school that I was really starting to, yeah, just hang around the wrong people and right. just, yeah, going in a bad way. And he's, he was also a really sporty guy, like doing uh, triathlons and long distance running and everything. So he sort of took me a little bit under his wing, um, in the sports class and was trying to really push me to, um, yeah, do different types of sports, see what I really loved, you know, not, not through forcing me to do it, but just, just seeing where I really excelled at and wanted to do more of. And, um, I was actually quite lucky that, um, an ad in the paper came up, uh, about talented uh, kids at school. Okay. Um, and each school could send a couple of kids if they thought um, they were quite talented to go and do like a program with the Australian Institute of Sport. Okay. And um, I actually went to this program and uh, they'd done a lot of different tests on us, like running, jumping, like, um, 
yeah, all different types of tests about um, your ability to do sport, and then they would do like I guess some studies on you, yeah, and see and suggest a sport that you would be best at based on your abilities. Wow! And um, they actually suggested for me um, cycling or rowing. Okay, which I which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, and um, yeah, being a motocross guy, um, rowing, yeah, definitely had no interest at all. But yep. um, cycling, I thought, could be quite interesting because. It's still on two wheels. I love riding my bike, so let's give it a go. And yeah, it all started from there. Fantastic. So, how old were you at that point? So, you were in high school, I guess, at that point. Yeah, I think I was fifteen at that point when I did the that program. So that's kind of. I mean, for, for a lot of professionals, I and mean, ultimately professionals, that's actually relatively late in the game. But uh, you clearly, you know, took to it like a duck to water. Yeah, I think I just I. I I, I built like a group, uh, a network of friends because um, a lot of the guys that I grew up with, what, that um, that grew up riding, they all had like a network of friends, and I got introduced to them, and then it just became fun. Like uh, the freedom of riding your bike was like getting your driver's license for the first time, where yeah. you can just take off on your bike with a group of friends and go wherever you want, you know. Yeah. So I think that was for me that the freedom of it and trying to get away from those bad people that I was hanging around with also. I think was a massive motivation for the, the people around me and my family to try and yeah steer me clear of those people I was hanging with. It is amazing though, isn't it? When you when you look back, you know that's really it's quite a quite a key pivotal moment, but a kind of small moment where somebody who's got your best interests at heart, you know, your PE teacher decides that you've got some talent and then steers you in this direction that ultimately leads to where you are today. You know, when you when you think step back at your life and look at it and look at this kind of moments in time that have led to where you are. It's quite amazing, really, mate, isn't it, looking back like that? Yeah, I, I still thank him every single day, to be honest. That's why, that's why I remember his name, because he's still a massive part of my life even now. Um, I, I 100% wouldn't be in the situation I am right now if it wasn't for him going out of his way to, um, to help me. And, um, yeah, I've, I also sent him a green jersey when I won the – when I won oh, the green jersey in the Tour de France, oh, it's brilliant. I sent him a world champ jersey when I'm one under 23. So yeah, we also, we do a lot of things together, which um, yeah, is, I just want to show my, my thanks to him for, for putting his arm out for me when I needed it, you know? That is very, very cool indeed. That is very, very cool. I mean, so moving on from there, you, uh, is in 2010, you, you kind of got your first opportunity to ride as a professional, a bit a kind of conti level. So when did you start? off the back of the AIS stuff, performing uh, uh, clearly at a good level. I mean, you clearly had ability to get there, but when did you really start making your mic, uh, mark as a rider? Um, I think probably second year under 23s, where we're over here in um, in Italy with the team. And I was really starting to get like a lot of podiums. And I think every every single race I started, I was either top three or winning. So yeah, um, I think at that point, um, Rabo was really interested. Yeah, Rabo Bank. Um, yep. And then um, yeah, came through to uh, coming towards Tour of Lavinia and the World Championships. Um, I signed with uh, with Rabo Bank um, in 2010, and then just after that, I won the World Championships. So I think um, they were pretty happy, and I was obviously already happy that I already signed a, a World Tour contract. But um, until that point, I never even really thought of being a pro i just i was having so much fun riding my bike that i didn't think of it of as a job right or as as a as a career um 
That's kind of nice, though, isn't it? That's kind of nice that it's just there's you're not bogged down by necessarily ambition at that point. It's a there's a purity, isn't there, to just riding and enjoying it, and the results just come. Yeah, I think that's that's sort of what I'm trying to go back to now. Is just yeah. that place, that headspace that I was in um, in that time of my life, and just I rode my bike because I wanted to get up every morning and go and explore the world and like push myself to my limit every single time I go on the bike rather than thinking I have to do these numbers today I have to do these hours yeah blah blah blah. you turn into a bit of a robot and I think the last few years I sort of lost that passion for cycling just trying to chase numbers rather than actually just enjoying myself and sort of turning your brain off and just enjoying that moment for what it is you know yeah yeah I mean just I'm just looking back actually um 2010 just at the results here um, of the the world championships that you won under twenty three, and of course in, in Aussie, um, you won as we know. Dagen Kolb, John, a certain John Dagen Kolb, second. William Boivin, third. Taylor Finney, fourth. Demar, fifth. <laughs> Colbrelli, sixth. Was in the break um, the other day with you. I mean, uh, Labato, Luke Road. It's just amazing, isn't it? When you, you kind of look, Mikel Lander just inside the top twenty as well. Um, do you ever do you ever take the time to kind of look back at your kind of old results, or are you kind of just living in the moment? Um, yeah, I definitely when I'm probably struggling a little bit, I look back at some videos of when I was winning. Um, yeah, that that feeling that it gave me, and it sort of yeah gives you that like um, feeling like I am a good bike rider because, as you know, as a bike rider, you lose much more than you win. So yes, you obviously go through highs and lows in cycling and in any part of your life really and I think if you do have some nice memories that you could look back at and just go actually you know what this is why I do this sport yeah is for those feelings when you cross the finish line first you go back to your teammates you celebrate in the bus a really nice dinner afterwards and the next day you go and do it all again and I think that's what sometimes you you forget as a bike rider that those feelings they the only way you get them is by going out on a limb and trying different things and racing where a lot of times you so calculate in your head that this is your sort of plan in a race and it doesn't work out and you start to think you're not a good bike rider and all this and you start to get a bit caught up in all those emotions where if you just look back sometimes at like those things that you achieved, you can also just yeah take yourself out of that box and just look at it from the outside and go, you know what, I have achieved nice things. Let's just go out and try and achieve more. Yeah, that's, I don't know, um, Michael, that's a really lovely way of looking at it. And it's quite interesting. And maybe 10 years ago now, I was, um, obviously, this is a Sigma Sports podcast, and they sponsored a, a, a Conti UCI team that I rode for and then managed um, at the back in sort of 20, 2008, 2009, 2010. And um, there's a couple of riders there who were excellent kind of riders and then had these kind of uh, nagging kind of doubts and, and kind of low morale and, and kind of sense of, they didn't kind of believe in themselves anymore. And one of the simple things that I used to say as a kind of, I didn't really, I wasn't an official coach, but I kind of coached them kind of mentally more than physiologically. But I would just say to them, look back two years ago to this result. Look at how you won that race on your own. Look at how you you, you won this stage race. And, and in block capitals, I would text them and just remind them of what they've done in the past. And uh, they did get back to me and said that I'd never thought about looking back before. I was always trying to look forward. Um, because you don't, unless you've had... A catastrophic injury of some sort essentially you're the same person aren't you you know and if yeah. and especially at your age you're still kind of growing um you know there's the physical side there's the mental side you know there's there is so much to kind of draw 
from, from your own kind of set of experiences that quite often is overlooked, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think also like even just talking to someone like a sports psych um, also can help for a lot of guys these days. I think when you see, when you see, I think now if I had to come through the ranks as an under 23 or under 19, where you see these superstars um, coming through um, at like 19 and 20 uh, winning bike races, I think it's, it's definitely difficult. Um, yeah. The times have changed where when I came through, the guys that were the big superstars were 30, like mid thirties, you know, like yeah. they were the guys that were winning bike races. Now it's, it's these young guys and it's putting so much pressure on them at such a young age, which I find it's going to be quite difficult for them to have a long career. Um, hopefully, hopefully they can, they can have a long career, but I think with all social media and stuff these days, it's, it's definitely making it more difficult for them to really sort of come into pros and build up as a good pro, you know, yeah. like work for guys and then get your opportunities through your ranks and build yourself up to be a long-term pro, which, yeah, I think, I, I hope it all works out, but I think it's going to be difficult for these guys. Yeah, I think that there's increasingly more and more talk about that, that the fact that if you look at a lot of the, there's still a lot of established superstars out there, but the, the riders, a lot of the time winning some of the biggest bike races in the world, including the Grand Tours, are riders that are kind of not just under 25, but under 24, under 23. Uh, and it is amazing. And and the kind of what they can do physically is, is quite astonishing. And it's really interesting. I've actually got that written down as a little question here. I mean, um, you've already mentioned it, but is that the kind of, since you turned pro, uh, a, a decade ago now uh, at world tour level um has that been what has been the biggest the biggest kind of shifts that you've kind of noticed um in 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 the pro peloton i mean you've obviously learned a hell of a lot about yourself you've achieved an immense amount but in terms of the change in the space of a decade looking back now um what's the biggest fundamental shifts and changes that that you could uh, that that you that you think have have kind of occurred over that time um, I think in terms of the peloton, probably respect between the riders has definitely gone. Um, right. I think when I first turned professional, it was really like there was guys in the peloton that just you looked up to. And if they said something, that's what you did. Yeah. Even if you were in a different team, um, which they said, okay, the break's done now. No one, no one attacks anymore, for example. Right. Uh, no one would attack, you know? Like, okay, that's done. No more attacking. They block the road and it's done. And no one would even think about attacking. Yeah. Now, if people try and do that, people will ride up the grass and pass you and, and still attack, you know? Yeah. So there's like, I know there's a lot of pressure from the team cars, from sponsors, everything like that. So I think that's probably one of the biggest things I've noticed in the peloton is probably the respect factor Okay. Um, for, for each other, which is quite unfortunate, to be honest. And and what about from a? I mean, that, that is. I mean, it's interesting you kind of say that. Um, I mean, like, rewind another ten years before that, like when I was riding with your with your DS with with, with Matt White. I mean, there was a proper hierarchy. You had the, your patron, two or three riders that would. I mean, you literally you could attack if you kind of wanted to, but then you'd be like ostracized from the rest of the bunch. They'd throw things at you. You'd be shouted at. It really was. It was very, very controlled, um, which is good and bad, I guess. But again, I think although everybody's got kind of different kind of sets of interests, different kind of objectives, when there's 200, 180, 200 riders bowling along 
you know, with a very, very intense, you know, difficult profession, respect is one of the most important things that kind of keeps you all together, isn't it? I mean, if fundamentally, you're um, a bunch of people with one common interest, and that's firstly staying safe, isn't it, for God's sake? Yeah, 100%. 100%. I think, like, now it's just, like, I think I read a, no, I think I read um, just an article last night that um, Jill Bear is out of Flanders through, I think, mental um, fatigue. I saw that. I, I read that. Really interesting piece, physical, wasn't it? Which I understand what he means by it. Like, even for me, coming back um, this year into the classics again, um, every year it's just getting more and more crazy. Like, cycling now is just turned into more like a boxing match than, than a bike race, which, yeah. yeah, you can either deal with that or you can't. And I think Gilbert, um, not to point any fingers at, at Phil, but I think he's, he's so used to being this, like, dominant guy um, that uh, can ride around the peloton and, and do what he wants for so many years. And now the peloton's changed so much that there's, like I said before, zero respect in the peloton that it is quite difficult to, yeah. uh, to go out and race your bike now in these classics when there's just zero respect in the peloton for each other. And it doesn't matter who you are, someone's going to bomb underneath you in a corner or take you out or, or, yeah, headbutt you or elbow you or anything, which, yeah, either you can you can deal with that and, and, and race and do it back or, yeah, you maybe can't. So I think it's, um, it's yeah, maybe this year with the corona, I don't know, but it's it seems to be more, more uh, crazy than, than other years, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, when you look at the what happened to the season last year, we did get a bit of a season, but it was truncated. And when you look at, there were a lot of riders within a very short space, short space of time trying to make sure they could get enough rides to secure a contract for the following year. And then this year, there's a similar kind of feeling, although there is a lot of races planned, there's a lot cancelled. And it's almost as if, I mean, even from a from a commentator's point of view, the amount of kind of things we have to, that we talk about, in, we, we are we're always talking about safety. We're always talking about the attitude of riders and how how many risks riders are taking. And riders are always calling for for courses to be to be safer, which is something that should never be ignored, of course. But then, quite often, they need to think about each other. How they interact within each other is a really interesting one because there are some quite reckless moves that you you, you see out there uh, quite often. Um, which is kind of quite worrying, but it, it is an interesting, it is an interesting one, which we could talk about for a long, long time, mate. But uh, moving on a bit, um, so talk, talking about the, the the way the peloton has evolved over the last decade. I mean, it is a subject you could talk about for ages, and, and I find it absolutely fascinating. But how have you changed, mate? I mean, uh, as a person, um, I mean, you're still not, you're not an exceptionally young chap. You're not an exceptionally old chap. You're thirty years of age, it, arguably in your prime. Um, but how have you changed over the last decade? Um, it's sort of hard to say how you've changed yourself. Um, oh, that's a, that's a hard question. I think. Oh, what have you learned and what have you can maybe learn, uh, that, that you're kind of putting into action? Um, I think I'm much more relaxed in the peloton, to be honest. Um, yeah. definitely, uh, I know a lot more of probably what's going to happen. Um, right. I've had so many years of doing the same, same sort of races. Um, yeah. definitely know where to save energy and where to use my energy. Um, and probably just know more about myself, how I can get the best out of myself, to be honest. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've definitely seen a lot of different things, um, through the last 10 years of, of being professional, but how I've changed, oh, I try, I try to be the same person, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I've tried to be the same person since I started till now. 
Yeah. But uh, I, th- I guess I've just matured more. Um, yeah. I was actually watching some YouTube videos about um, us in Green Edge when we were back in 2013 uh, for the Road Nationals, which, okay. um, yeah, just looking at myself and just thinking, okay, I'm, I'm the same person. I'm just more mature. I have a, I have a wife now for, I think, five years. Um, yeah. uh, we have a three-year-old baby. So, yeah, I think just a mature version of, of me, basically. That's all, yeah. I, that's all I've really changed, I think. I, I've actually got it. I've got how you how you change, I and mean, also um, being a dad, being a father, does change you, doesn't it? I mean, nobody can really, um, I think, prepare you enough, adequately enough, not for for, for, for that fundamental change. I mean, because people say, "Oh, yeah, you, you're definitely going to change your outlook on everything will change," but until it actually happens to you, I mean, it is amazing it, for, for so, but for all the right kind of reasons. But as a professional bike rider. Um, did you start to think about things any kind of differently or were you calmer? How did having a, having a youngster to look after and nurture kind of change you as a pro bike rider, if, if it did at all? Um, I think in a way, um, when, when my daughter first, first was born, I was, um, yeah, super relaxed and, and happy and really racing hard. And I think after one year, um, I sort of realized that I had, another human being that me and my wife made together, um, which it sort of, yeah, it caught up in my head. It was like, wow, we actually made like a baby together. Like that's, that's a gift from God, you know? And I sort of thought like, wow, I do such a, such a dangerous sport. Like how can I do this to my daughter doing this such dangerous sport? And what if something happens to me and then I'm, I'm gone and she's left without a father. And then I was like, okay, I really need to cut that out and go back to doing my job um, the best I can to to make it worth all the time that I'm away from my daughter and away from my wife and away from my family um, and get the most out of it while I have this amazing opportunity to race my bike and um, make my daughter and my wife proud of me um, yeah. at the same time. And I think that's what made it m- the most special at the moment is like my daughter watching me on the TV <laughs> and um, we, we have a call after the race and she says, oh, I was cheering for you, daddy, on the TV. And that for me, it, it makes me want to race even harder to, for, them, for them just to be proud of me of what I'm uh, achieving um, in my, my dream of being a professional cyclist. That's very, very cool. That's very, very cool. Well, I'm going to ask you to sort of go back in time a little bit again because um, to stage six of the 2014 Giro when you were in the pink jersey um, and you end up winning the stage to Monte Cassino. It's bad weather, I, I seem to remember. I think I was I was actually there um, for that race. What I'd like to do, if you don't mind, I mean, because that was cool. I mean, we'd always known that you weren't just a sprinter. You were, you know, a, you could sprint exceptionally well amongst the best, but you were very, very talented on the hillier terrain as well. But that that ride for you, it must have been a very, very special one, mate. Sorry, I just had a mouthful of food there. That's okay. Um, <laughs> I thought you were just re- going to refuse to answer the question. It's like, sorry, Matt, no, I'm no, not no. talking about that. <laughs> no, I've got a really nice salad here that I'm trying to get in, but in between the in between the stops. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was a special day um, for a lot of different reasons. Actually, um, yeah, we obviously had the pink jersey, which already was, um, yeah, a dream was to wear that pink jersey, and then um, yeah, we sort of went into the stage. Um, 
because before the jury even started, uh, I did some some recon of the stages, obviously, um, just on the internet. But uh, my wife uh, chose that stage, and she's like, "I think you can win this stage." And I looked okay. at it like eight k, I think seven percent uphill. What? And she's like, "No, nah, you're going to win this stage." I was like, "What are you talking about?" Anyway, my coach also, he's <laughs> like, "Yeah, I reckon you can do it. I reckon it's it's on the limit, but I reckon it's possible." And um, so I went to Whitey and uh, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, we'll position you at the bottom. you got the pink jersey and then you just see what you can do, you know, like just fight for the jersey, try and hold it for as long as you can through this right. Giro. Anyway, we go into the stage. It's I think it was like 250K or 240K, like massive day, you know, um, and it was headwind the whole day. So we had the jersey and we're like, okay, we need to ride the front because we have the jersey. Hopefully we'll get some help later on. And I actually don't think we got any help the whole day. So my boys, they rode the front the whole day into this headwind. And then, like you say, it started, I think the weather got quite bad. It started raining. Um, yeah. The roads were super wet. And coming towards the final, it got really technical with like uh, small roads and roundabouts. And um, there actually ended up being a massive stack at the bottom of the hill, basically, on the last roundabout before we went up up the hill to to the finish. Yeah. And... Um, at that point, I was actually Luke Durbridge done an awesome job positioning me for like the last 15K before that roundabout. And I think we were like the first two maybe to go through there. Yeah. And uh, I remember turning around and just seeing all these guys just sliding down the road and just crashing everywhere. And um, yeah, I think only, what was it, maybe 15 or 15 or so of us got through that roundabout and could actually contest the finish, which I was like, okay, well, this is going to make things a bit easier, obviously, with 15 instead of uh, 150 guys going up this climb because it was actually quite an easy day. We just sort of rolled along in the headwind and, yeah, nothing really happened because it was such a long day. But, yeah, I remember just hitting the climb and I think uh, Cadell Evans, he had a teammate there also which pulled really hard at the bottom to really try and, I think, extend for the GC. Um, for, for I think Cadel. it was Morabito, wasn't it? I think Steve Morabito yeah. was there, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, you're right there. And um, he was just pulling for yeah, I think the majority of the climb. And I just remember riding up there, like, okay, wow, my legs are super good today. Um, yeah. I I think I can win this. And I took a gel, I think, with like one and a half k to go, which people <laughs> still joke at me today, thinking like, what did you think you were going to achieve? out of taking a gel with one and a half K to go. It's a good question. It's a good question. Uh, <laughs> it is a good question. You wouldn't think you could achieve much out of this, but yeah, somehow it worked out. And um, yeah, I got laid out by Cadell in the sprint and could um, overtake him in the final there. Yeah. I mean, when you, you look back at, at images of riders <laughs> winning various races, but it's not very often, or it's, you know, it must be, um, I mean, obviously one of the, the highlights of your career, um, like winning a stage like that in front of that sort of opposition, but it, but in the, in a grand tour, but in the leader's Jersey, winning a stage doesn't those, those kind of opportunities or, you know, moments don't come around very often. And, and just looking at the, the, the image earlier on when I was just doing my, my bit of research and remembering watching it, I mean, the, the kind of delight on your face, there's like a, you're obviously smiling, but there's something else there. There's kind of, I don't know, you're just, there's something deeper than just enjoying that moment. It's very, very special. Yeah, I think 
um, it was the way that it sort of turned out was like, yeah, I don't think many people had actually won a stage in the pink jersey. Um, yeah, yeah. At the Giro, I think only was it Pantani before me was probably the only one to win more than at one stage in the pink jersey. So I think I was like, okay, I'm probably wrong with these stats, but um, there's not too many guys that got that opportunity to be able to do that. I think now there's a yeah. few more, but I think at that point um, of the Giro, there was not too many guys that achieved that. So it was not just winning a stage of the Giro. It was not just wearing the pink jersey. It was doing both at the one time. Yeah. Um, you, you, you appear to be in transit <laughs> yeah. Damn it! Have I thought I could get away with it without. No, without, no. You know, there, was, there was a there was a long pause. I thought I'd upset you again, but thankfully I hadn't. Um, talk us through where you are. So, are you have you just got in the lift or something? Well, I had thirty percent battery on my laptop, and okay. I got down to one percent. So I had to kamikaze to the uh, to the bedroom to get my charger. Fair enough, mate. You, do you know what? That was relatively seamless. It just kind of, uh, and I'm glad you did because that would have been quite an unfortunate end to what's been a very enjoyable podcast so far, mate. So let's just allow you a few moments just to plug yourself in. Are you plugged in? Yep, I'm good now. You could ask. I tell you what. Well, off the back of that, I mean, no, it was an amazing win, and um, it. I do like to ask people just to take us through some of their kind of um, the biggest wins, most important wins in their career. And you've, you've done that really, really well. I mean, and again, just to go back to your, your, your earlier point, I mean, remembering moments like that in your career, although that was kind of six, seven years ago, um, they must kind of, I don't help you with you. Not that you kind of need helping with your morale, but just gentle reminders of your achievements in the past are kind of what's made you who you are today. So, you know, um, I'm sure you don't mind kind of reliving those moments. Yeah, I think, like I said at the start of the podcast, it's being a cyclist is it has so many highs and so many lows, and probably more lows than highs. And I think to to really continue to keep fighting for those dreams that you have uh, to achieve in cycling, you need to look back at what you have also achieved. And I think you you go through moments where you do doubt yourself, yeah. and a lot of the way I find to get my confidence back is to is to look back at moments of of where i was really successful and having a great time and enjoying myself and i think that for me is one of the big moments where i can really sort of sit back and go i am a good bike rider i i do have some nice victories but i also want to achieve more you know yeah i'm not i'm not done yet and no. i i don't want to give up until i can't achieve them anymore and i still think i'm getting better and better every single day. So I just need to keep believing that, um, yeah, I can achieve more and I, I am better than I was then. So why can't I do more now? Exactly. Exactly. A, a, um, well, looking back, I mean, you're going to be, you've signed through with, with bike exchange till the end of 2022, your first team that you rode for apart from the AS, of course, was team Jayco skins. What I'd like you to do, Michael is, Describe to me each of the teams that you've spent time with in one word. So I'm going to go through Jayco, Rabobank, Orica, Sunweb, and then back to Bike Exchange. And obviously, there's a four-year gap. But um, I, I asked this to all my guests. I asked it to Adam Blythe, Steve Cummings, and it was quite fun. So can you describe to me in just one word, team, what it was like, what your experience was like, um, or your, just your thoughts on the team, Jayco Skins? 
One word. Oh, that's a difficult question. <laughs> um, I have so many nice words to say about Jacob Skins. Um, well, can I say two words? Uh, go on then. Uh, life changing. Life changing. That because that's kind. Of, I think that can be hyphenated. So let's call that one word. That's we'll good. Okay. Life changing. Moving on then to Rabobank. Um. Life changing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a hard one because it's like my first world to a team. Uh, living in Europe by myself, um, a whole new culture, um, being the young, the young kid coming through. Um, it was, it was incredible. Um, how about I incredible? Guess could, I guess how you could say incredible, but incredible. I guess incredible has so many different terms. Depends it does. Which term you're using incredible. Um, I think in context, in credit, in, we're, people are going to assume it's good in a good way. We, we can, we, mm. we can, I think that, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Yeah. So we've got life changing, okay. incredible. Moving on to your first stint uh, with Whitey's setup, Orica Green Edge. One word for that four year stint. Um, Again, it's a tough one. Um, let's just say fun. I think fun. That, that's a, that that's whole a great experience word. was just fun. I yeah. think we went through so many things in those in those four years together um that the whole experience was just fun and that that that's a nice way to sum up four years mate so life-changing incredible fun now we move to sunweb uh from 2017 to 2020 um interesting interesting okay <laughs> no this, this this is good this is what we want this is what we yeah. want um so interesting and then okay you haven't been with them long but essentially it was i guess like going back kind of home for you. So one word to sum up your experience so far of Team Bike Exchange. Um, I guess you can say home. That's it, nice. feels, it feels like I came home. For the, yeah. That I've been away for a while and I came back to my family. That's oh. what it sort of feels like. Home or family? Family. Home or fa- Which one, mate? Hmm. Home. Home. I do like the way that you're more than happy to ponder and leave that dead air on the podcast. I do like it. It's, you're the first yeah. guest who's really kind of sat back and thought. So life-changing, incredible, fun, interesting, and home. What a lovely, just a, a really short way to sum up your decade as a pro so far, mate. Really like that. I really like that. Now, changing tax completely. Um, I think I did allude in my little email to you that we have a, a quiz, or we, it's a relatively new part of the podcast, we have a quiz about your hometown. So sit back, Michael, and prepare yourself for the Canberra Quiz. The Canberra Quiz. The Canberra Quiz. Good day, mate. Now it's time for the Canberra Quiz. <laughs> there you go yeah our uh, producer Noel um, is very very proud of those little jingles although I don't think you can really call that a jingle um, but interesting wasn't it that was more of like a scary rap a scary rap there you go Noel that's some <laughs> feedback for you pal a scary rap yeah a little bit alarming there you go you got a point for that so basically uh, Michael I've got four questions here on Canberra um, of course the capital of, of Australia um, but I'm not going to 
super put you on the spot. They're all multiple choice, okay? So you can relax. So basically, if you don't know the answer, you can have a cheeky little guess. Um, okay. So here we go. Question, are you comfortable? Yeah. You're focused and ready. Here we go. Just like the start of a, of a, of a, of a prologue, isn't it? Um, well, maybe not. Right, question number one. In the early 1900s, there was a very long dispute over whether Sydney or Melbourne should be Australia's capital. Eventually, though, as a compromise, it was decided to build a new capital in South Wales. So, my question to you is, what year was Canberra formally founded? Okay. I didn't actually know that. I just thought it was always always there. But apparently, because they couldn't decide on whether Sydney or Melbourne should be the capital, they built a new city. So anyway, when was Canberra founded, Michael? Was it in A, 1910, B, 1911, C, 1912, or D, 1913? <laughs> if I'm, I'm going to be totally honest here. I did know that uh, Melbourne and Sydney were yeah competing to yeah. obviously get the capital, but the exact year where Canberra became the capital, I have zero idea. So this is going to be a straight up guess. That's fine, mate. Um, oh. Yeah, I guess they're all a guess, so it doesn't really matter what I say. <laughs> if no, they're all a guess, no mate, thinking is there? There's yeah. very little. If you don't know, it's just going to be chance. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I feel like 1913. Correct. Like a- it's correct, mate. I didn't want to. I didn't want you to go back on your first answer. 1913 is the right answer. Brilliant oh. start, mate. Um, I did know it was just deep down in my brain somewhere and I just needed to fish it out. Exactly. There was something there, although it was a guess, there was clearly something (laughs) there that made you ultimately opt for that. And obviously you're brought up in camera. It must've been there somewhere, mate, and you're deeply buried in your, the filing cabinet of your mind. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Right. Here's a question based on weather. Uh, And I have a feeling, unless you're really, really interested in the weather forecast and you might have got a degree in it, this might be a guess as well. But here we go. What what is the average yearly rainfall in Canberra in millimetres? Okay. Is it 559.5 mils, 569.5 mils, 579.5 mils, or 589.5 mils per year? Wow. I'd imagine um, that you might not know the answer to this one, so you might have to pick <laughs> Unless you've been scrolling through Wikipedia. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I thought, uh, I thought these questions were going to be, like, a bit easier. Um, I, wow. I, I mean, I, I did – I thought, how hard shall I go? But I, I wanted – it's only Wednesday. You've still got three or four days before Flanders, mate. She should be fine. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, I, this is honestly going to be another straight up guess. Um, I can't even actually remember the numbers that you said, but what if we just go with C? It's correct. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, mate, you should, you should start going down, you go gambling for a living, mate, just going down the roulette wheel and just uh, go and buy a lottery ticket. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) So the correct answer is 579.5 millimeters a year. Maybe it's, maybe it's something to do with your voice. Could when you say it. the correct answer, you say it a little bit differently to the others. Do you know what? I never... Maybe I'm reading you. I'm reading you, I think. Bloody hell. I didn't... Mm. 
Maybe I need to go, become a bit more neutral. But yeah, I, that's a, a flipping. I'm going to have to really be neutral on this next one, then, just in case you have to guess this one. I shouldn't have told you this, should I? No, <laughs> I but no. Have. It's uh, it's good to know. It's a two way process. It's nice for me to learn as well. Um, it's nice that we can both come out of this podcast having learned something. Okay. Yeah. Right. Question three. Question three. Canberra, as I previously mentioned, is a planned city. Okay, uh, so it didn't it didn't organically grow. It was it was planned, um, and it was designed by an American architect. Okay, but what was his name? Okay, here we go. Was it A. Walter Burley Hubber? Was it B. Walter Burley Griffin? Was it C. Walter Burley Whalebone? Or was it D. Walter Burley Matthews? <laughs> <laughs> C, uh, A, no, B, sorry, B. It's correct, Griffin. Whoa, mate. Did you, so did you know that? <laughs> well, we have a lake in camera called Lake Billy Griffin, so that was my guess. Brilliant. Well, there you go. So basically, you've tapped your knowledge and you've used it to devastating effect. Um, 100%, mate, now so far. I don't think we've ever had, I'm just thinking back. I don't think anybody this deep into the the quiz has got so many points right, mate. So it's all resting on the final the final question, and the final one is an absolute corker. So here we go. More <laughs> right. a corker than the others. Go on. on. This is this is quite tan- this is quite tangential. Okay. Right. Question four. The National Dinosaur Museum in Canberra was established in 1993. But my question to you, Michael Matthews, is. What dinosaurs are on the official logo? <laughs> Don't know if you've been there as a kid. So they've got a logo. Um, is it A, a T-Rex and a Triceratops? B, a Diplodocus and a Stegosaurus? C, a T-Rex and a Diplodocus? Or D, a Triceratops and a Diplodocus? What is a Diplodocus Docus again? A diplodocus um, is the is the the like the Loch, the Loch Ness monster, the big one that just eats eats kind of leaves and has got a long neck and a lo- oh, super long tail. Leg. Yeah, so it's one of the else? most. It's it, it might. It, I thought it's it a diplodocus. Um, it, I think it has got two names, but if you can give me the other name and it, you think it's that one, that's absolutely fine. Um, so yeah. Oh, yeah. T-Rex, obviously famous. Triceratops, that's the one with the horns and the kind of... Yeah. And then the Diplodocus, the kind of uh, plant-eating one, and a Stegosaurus, yeah. that's the one with the things on its back. T-Rex and Diplodocus, yeah. or a Triceratops and a Diplodocus. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <that> was <laughs> you're, really, you're really thinking about this, mate, aren't you? I mean... No, um, I, I need a 100% score. How many more How many more questions are there? This is it. This is the final question, mate. Oh, and if you get this... Okay. And, and there's, a, there's a bonus question at the end as well. Oh. Um, I, I feel like it was a... It was a, a T-Rex. Yep. And something flying. Oh, uh, th- that wasn't on my list, but... Um, but what's um, this flying one called? Oh, what's the flying one was, called? What was it? What's isn't there? Wasn't there one with wings? No. Yeah, that there is one with wings, but I, 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 it's not on my list. But I can't remember what that one was called. But I know what you mean. So okay. my list again for you, mate: T Rex, Triceratops, Diplodocus, Stegosaurus, T Rex, Diplodocus, Triceratops, Diplodocus. 
feel like it's A. You feel like it's A. I, um, by, by the tone of your voice, I think I got it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can't say anything, mate, but it's, it's your call. I, I feel like it's A or A or C. I don't know. I, I'm I'm judging between those two. Have a little think, mate. Take your time. I mean, uh, as I say, Flanders is a long way off. (laughs) (laughs) I don't need to go to to Whiting and say I was too exhausted from the quiz with Matt. (laughs) I actually got gym after this. So um, uh, this is actually getting me all spurred out for my gym session. Good stuff. Um, All right, I'm going to go with C. It's correct. Well done, mate. T-Rex and a Diplodocus. Oh, yeah. And I've, if yeah. you head to nationaldinosaurmuseum.com.au, you can yeah. see um, the logo. And you've got little T-Rex in the corner and then the Diplodocus with its head kind of wrapped round in the left-hand side. And it's, it's 25 years it's been open now, although I think that logo is a little bit old. But, um, but there we go. But it's obviously closed at the moment um, because of, uh, of COVID. But uh, have you ever visited that museum as a kid or as, a, an, as an adult? No. No. Uh, that was a short answer. <laughs> <laughs> so what was going to happen? I've ask, past it a lot. I know exactly where it is. It's like oh, right. on, a, on a, one of our um, on the Saturday morning bunch ride. Actually, I uh, oh, ride right. past okay. it every time. But um, no, it's quite a way out of town, actually. And fake dinosaurs. Yeah, it's not really. Yeah, it's, <laughs> fair <laughs> enough, mate. But the bonus point, but it's not really a bonus point. It's just uh, there's no uh, right or wrongness. Um, so I don't know why I put bonus point next to it, but basically <laughs> what, I mean, for all, all our kind of pro cycling fans, Michael Matthews fans are dinosaur fans. What is your favorite dinosaur? And if you had to describe yourself using a dinosaur, what would it be? Um, I think the, the, is it the Velociraptor? Like this? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's really quite quiet and looks like creeps around, but when it, uh, <laughs> when it jumps at you, it jumps at you. You don't know he's yeah. there until he's there. I think the way you've described that, I'm actually going to give you a proper bonus point because you're not just like randomly, glibly just pull one out of the sky. You've thought about that. Um, and would you say, again, please don't take offense, that that kind of, the, the Velociraptor kind of mirrors what you kind of what you're like as a bike rider as well, perhaps? Yeah, I think that's what I mean. Like, like yeah. as a person, I don't, um, I don't stand out too much until I stand out. There you go, mate. I like yeah. it. So, uh, Maybe rather than bling, it's just like Velociraptor from now on. It's <laughs> a bit too big. <laughs> yeah, it takes ages, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Do you know what, though? When you think about this, if you shorten Velociraptor, what do you get? Raptor? Velo. Velo. Oh. oh. Yeah. Oh. Bicycle flipping neck, mate. I get, we're getting a bit too deep here. Okay. Very, very <laughs> interesting indeed. Very interesting indeed. Um I tell you what, what we'll do, we'll wrap up the pod with a few cheeky little rapid fire questions, which will maybe kind of warm you up so you can really hit this gym session and maximize um, its its kind of usefulness and its purpose. Okay. Right. Um, What's Matt White like as a boss? Uh, Yeah, he's amazing. The passion this guy has, the the drive, uh, he just, he lives for this team he lives for bike racing any time of the day if you want to call him he'll he'll call you and he'll have motivational talks with you he'll tell you the honest truth i think as a as a professional athlete to have him by your side it's 
it's like nothing else. I think if yeah. he really believes in you that you can achieve these things and he, he backs you, um, you'll get the best out of yourself a hundred percent. Um, I, I love working with him. That's one of the, one of the main reasons I came back to this team was, was to work side by side with him again, with the way he conducts these meetings, um, before the race, um, the way he gets all the riders motivated, like you, you're almost tingling on, in the, on the bus, just wanting to get out there and to show him what you're capable of, you know? Um, and just his knowledge of, of, of cycling, of, of the world of cycling through his own experiences and yeah, guiding us also in the right direction. Um, he's just, yeah, the perfect guy to have in, have in a team in a team environment. He makes everyone have fun, but at the same time at the right times, we're very, very serious. And I think that's what makes a team atmosphere is having a guy like that on board that knows the time and the place to do both those things, you know? Um, yeah, I, mean, I can only say great things about the guy. No, fair enough. I mean, he, he was a guest, as you know, a guest on the pod a while ago and um, a, a rider that we're, we're similar age. So we kind of raced against each other sort of 20, 20 odd years ago. But um, yeah. it's really, I know we've got the the benefits of kind of in, in car kind of, um, you know, GoPros and we see how directors and that react. And, and every, you know, directors from every team get, you know, full of kind of joy and when, when you get a win. But, Matt in particular, knowing him quite well, very, very well now, um, he kind of does live and breathe it. And, and there's, he really does care, doesn't he? I mean, he's, he's not somebody who just kind of works for the team. He bet he is, is the team, isn't he? You know, he's in, an intrinsically important part of it. And, and one thing that you, you know for sure is that he cares, doesn't he? He really, really cares. And he, and he knows those experiences. He knows that there's going to be highs and lows. And I, I do love the way that he kind of manages the team. And it's one of the most fun teams to just be around as a, as a kind of journalist, you know, coming around to the teams and speaking to riders and you can sense generally, even when, you know, you're going through tough times that there's generally a good spirit and that's, no, he's a top bloke. He he really is. So, um, yeah, from my perspective on the outside looking in, I, you know, completely understand why you said that mate in there. Um, and he didn't actually ask me to answer you that question either. So I did actually come up. (laughs) So I needed to kind of just just seal that one off. Um, okay. Another quick one. Um, well, it's not quick. It's as long as you, you know, you can make it as long or as short as you want. Hardest day on the bike. Um, There's going to be plenty of those, isn't there? Blimey, for over a 10-year career, mate. Oh, mate. I, <laughs> uh, to put it down to one is actually the most difficult part. Well, maybe um, the most memorable, I mean, most memorably, is there a day that, you, that just sticks in your mind? It's like, whoa. I mean, it might not be the hardest, but one that you knew that you kind of had to kind of go over the limit and just almost... Because there's days on the bike, isn't there, as a pro, where you kind of question, why the hell you're, you're a professional cyclist? Don't get hurt that much. Yeah, um, I think uh, probably one that springs to mind. Actually, we're talking about with um, with the boys um, a couple of days ago was probably San Remo. Um, not the rain one, not the not the snowy one. I mm. think it was the year after where it ra- like it rained at the start and then it stopped over the Torquino. So we all took our jackets off and then it started raining again, like midway between uh, the Torquino and the finish. Right. Um, so yeah, it was raining at the start, obviously, yeah, 300 K race. Um, and then we came, it's the weather started to look all right. So we all took our jackets off and then it started raining again. Right. And so then you're putting it all back on again and it was freezing and yeah, racing into the, the suppressor after the cappers. And I was that cold um, that I got to the bottom of the suppressor and I think I maybe rode, rode 100 metres up and 
both my legs just totally cramped. My whole body was like, yeah, totally frozen. I got back home um, after the race, which thankfully I was living in, in Monaco and it wasn't far from the from San Remo. And yeah. um, I think I took probably like two or three sleeping tablets just to be able to get to sleep and like a muscle relaxant to try and yeah relax my muscles because they were so done there was just like i felt like i was gonna just die i was that cold and and cramped in every single muscle and then the doping control arrived at six o'clock in the morning so i think i had like three hours sleep or something after probably the worst bike race i've ever done in my life um because once it started raining again it was proper cold also like zero degrees yeah and like i remember trying to put gloves on and i couldn't put gloves on because my hands were so cold because i couldn't feel them to put the glove on and I had to go next to the car and Whitey was trying to pull my glove on and I couldn't put it on because I didn't know where my fingers were. My was, fingers, that 20, was that 2014? Was that 2014? Because I, I seem to remember. 2014 does ring a bell, yeah. Yeah. I think 2013 was the snow, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. And the 2014, yeah, I reckon it was that. And it was just, yeah, it was probably the worst day on the bike oh god of my life and it kind of extended beyond the day on the bike it was at home as well oh my god okay then yeah. flip that round only a couple more questions mate and i'll let you go um mm-hmm. best best day on the bike when you just had as as adam Blythe said on on air the other day di- when you had diamonds in the legs what's the day one of the obviously you've obviously had many but diamonds in the leg days, mate what's the day that you felt you could almost do anything um i think looking back um at a day where i didn't really ever feel the pedals was probably um bink bank a couple of years ago when i won the final stage um where we had the sprint up um the mervan girlsbergen finish yeah um it was uh, quite a i think a long stage it was like 220k or something and um we did i think three or four times over the mervan girlsbergen and um yeah and then we had the obviously the sprint for the first part and then to turn left into the town and yeah, still slightly uphill on the cobbles, uh, to the finish. That was the whole day. I just didn't feel my legs, um, once. And I just felt like whatever I wanted to do, I could do. And yeah. if I wanted to attack, I could attack. If I wanted just to sit here and wait for the sprint, I'd wait for the sprint. And I think even in the sprint, I put like time into the guys behind me and, <laughs> and, uh, almost actually won the GC on that day because I put so much time into uh, Mohorovic in the, in the final sprint. I, 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 I remember watching it. Yeah, it was a, yeah. I, I mean, a, I do, I mean the big bank tour, especially that final stage of the last few years, it's like a kind of a mini tour of Flanders really, isn't it? But yeah, you, I remember watching that and it was, you were like absolutely stomping and I've got, yeah, you, you put a second into Greg Van Avermaet, three seconds into Stebar, Narsen, Wellens, yeah. <laughs> and and one of your new and a teammate of yours who's now Dion Smith. But uh, and then yeah, like ten seconds into the rest, and that was just on that final running, wasn't it? Yeah, just on just in the sprint there. I think I started my sprint with like three hundred meters to go, so it was obviously long. But um, yeah, I think to be able to do that, you also need to be strong. So I think that's yeah. Going back to your question, that's probably the day that really springs to mind where. Like obviously, I've had probably better rides than that, but yep. looking back at the the feeling of the pedals, how how they didn't really feel like they were there that day, it just felt like I had no chain on. Probably springs to mind the most that day. Yeah, that's very cool, mate. Two more questions and the short ones. The, the, this this next one, I quite I quite like this one. Who is the most Australian of your teammates? <laughs> 
who's the most Australian? Because you've got a few Aussie teammates. Well, it's a very, you know, it's an international, really international flavour to the squad. But who's the most Australian? Uh, is it you? Oh, I don't, unfortunately, <laughs> I would like to say me, but I haven't actually been to, back to Australia since like 2017. So, Oh, right. Okay, mate. Okay. Unfortunately, even my, even my teammates almost think I'm a European these days. But right. um, yeah, uh, I think everyone has their own like personality of what an Australian uh, is, you know, like yeah. they're, they're themselves. Like, yeah. I think that's the best thing about this team is everyone's themselves. They, you don't, you don't feel like you have to be someone else in this team. You, you can be yourself. And I think the idea of an Australian can be context in a lot of different ways, you know, like it can be your accent, it can be uh, the way you dress, it can be your, the, the way you, you are as a person. I don't know. Yeah. But, um, I think if I had to like say one name, yeah. um, I think, Oh, Ed, Edmo at the moment, I've spent a lot of time with him this year. Um, he's, he's very Australian. I think okay. his accent is still super strong. Yeah. Um, he's yeah. Spends like probably the most time back in Australia in between. Um, I, I think I just have to say probably with accents, to be honest, he's, okay, he's so- he hasn't, he hasn't got a European based uh, Aussie accent yet. So, okay. Let's say, so that- let's say Edmo. So, so Alex Edmondson is the most Australian for, and he's out on the road at the moment. I mean, I'll, we've got one more question, then you can start, then you can watch the telly. Uh, will you, yep. will you have like a screen on in the gym? Otherwise, you'll miss the action, mate. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll be watching. I'll be watching. Good stuff. Well, the final Cheers. question then, uh, Margaret. Do you know what? It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, I, I really, really do appreciate, and I'm sure the listeners will, you know, appreciate how generous you've been with your time and how considered you've actually uh, been with all the questions. But the final. Um, question is basically is this um, what's the best piece of advice uh, that you've ever been given hmm. I'll tell you another question the worst piece of advice I've okay given. yeah far away I'm gonna flip your question around okay good I like uh, it. don't worry you're young you have lots of time right that's, that's that for yeah. me like I know it's it's something people say when you probably yeah miss out on an opportunity or you come second or whatever they say you have lots of time I I really don't like that one but going back to answering your question um, good answer though by the way piece, I think that's very true very very true indeed yeah because these opportunities that you get in cycling or in life don't always just come around again so yeah. when you get the opportunity take it yeah but going back to your question um, best piece of advice. Uh, believe in yourself. Okay. I think that's probably the best. Believe in yourself because you're the you're you're the person that has the uh, what's the what's the word? Um, I guess you've got the ultimate control over what you do in your decisions and your own destiny. Really, I mean, you can be influenced, but you make the calls, don't you? You know. Yeah. Let's just say believe. Let's just say believe in yourself. I think that's the biggest one anyone can ever say to you because in the end you're by yourself on the road um in the race and if you don't believe in yourself how can you possibly uh achieve your dreams if you don't believe in yourself fair enough mate well what what a a kind of lovely way to kind of wrap up the podcast um no a great a great piece of advice and um yeah and and the other one yeah don't yeah seize the moment you know because time does move very quickly and believe believe you me mate i'm 51 and um with every passing year it seems that 
the years go even quicker than before. Um, yeah. but, but there you go, mate. But yeah, you've still got you know a lot of good years ahead of you, mate. You've got a wonderful kind of past to look back on and reflect. And I'm sure back at home with uh, with Bike Exchange, mate, you'll go on to achieve even better success, mate. But um, but Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Take care and uh, good luck in the gym this afternoon and uh, even better luck in Flanders on Sunday, mate. Yeah, thanks very much, Matt. And yeah, thanks thanks for having me on. It was a it was a really fun experience, and uh, I hope everyone enjoyed listening. Um, and uh, hopefully, we can put on a good show on Sunday. But Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. You take care of yourself. Thanks, Matt. Speak to you later, mate. What a bloke! I'm recording this podcast before the Tour of Flanders, so I'd like to wish Michael all the best in the Ronde. But I guess you, the listener, will already know how he got on. So, in advance of that, yay or Hard luck, Michael. Don't worry, Michael. You're young. You have lots of time. That's the best piece of advice I can think of right now. Thanks, as ever, to Perry App Gwyneth for the podcast theme tune, and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate the pod, and why not recommend it to your cycling buddies, or to Des Proctor, the inspirational PE teacher that put Michael Matthews on the right path. Well done, Des. Finally, a massive thanks again to Michael for taking time out of his busy schedule to join us on the podcast today and for being the first ever guest to successfully transition from a bar in Belgium to his hotel room whilst recording the interview and eating a salad, the flavour of which will remain unknown. Unless you ask him, not us. Here's his email, michaelblingmatthews at bikeexchange.org.au.com. Cheers all, stay safe and goodbye. 